For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in Hebrews chapter 2. We've been talking about, you know, the importance of context. What's going on, you know, why did the author of Hebrews sit down to write this information inspired by God to this particular group of people? We know that they were under persecution. They were having a hard time. They were people from a Jewish background that had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So the religious authorities who had had Jesus killed were now trying to snuff out his teaching and his followers. And they were deciding because of what they had seen and the, the arguments that had been made and what they had witnessed themselves in the person of Jesus Christ to become his followers. And they were paying a heavy price for that. And they were wondering, is this new way, is it worth it? Could I just give all this up and kind of sink back into obscurity and be like everyone else? Or should I stand up because I know that this is true? And is it worth paying any price because of the importance of the message of God's love? And so really, in a lot of ways, they were caught in the tension of two different cultures, even among the Jewish people at this time, they were sort of divided among themselves in a cultural way in the first century. There were what was called the Hebraic Jews. These were the cultural and religious conservatives who were worried that, you know, people weren't speaking Hebrew like they used to and who were vehemently attached to the traditions of their fathers who were arguing that we need to push away and we need to be strictly adhering to our religious traditions. They were suspicious of outsiders and they wanted to protect the culture and the history that was theirs. On the other hand, there were what's called the Hellenistic Jews. These were Jewish people from a Jewish background, a Jewish culture, a Jewish family, but they had been under... 300 years of Greek rule, and Greek culture was magnificent. The philosophy, the athletics, the language, the poetry, the writing, all of this stuff that was coming from one of the most prolific cultures the world has ever known had been seeping into Israel for about 300 years after Alexander the Great came through and established his nation. And so these Hellenistic Jews identified with Judaism, but many of them no longer even understood how to read or speak Hebrew. They might speak Greek or Aramaic. They couldn't read the Torah for themselves. They were still Jewish, but they were heavily influenced by Jewish culture. There are stories and records because of the, uh, the Greek gymnasiums that uh, Jewish men were wanting to not circumcise their children so that they would blend in better. It was sort of the hip, modern thing to do as a progressive Jewish person. And so within the audience of the book of Hebrews, there's the Jewish people that have come to Christ, but they are also coming at it from a Hebraic traditional background, some of them, and a Hellenistic background for some of the others. And so there were thoughts and inclinations and tensions that were among them. For the Hebraic Jews, it was difficult to believe that Jesus was God. Because 
They were expecting the Messiah, and their scriptures told them things like his name will be Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, and they thought the Messiah would be God, but what they never imagined was that the Messiah would come and die on a cross. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and how could God come and allow himself to be treated so. The all-powerful creator God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, would come and be tortured and killed by man? That's why Hebrews 1 opens up really stressing the deity of Jesus, saying he is the exact representation of God's being. He is the radiance of God's glory that the angels were instructed to worship him. He was higher than the prophets. He's the creator, the sustainer, the owner of all things. All of what we studied two weeks ago was in part to reinforce to those who were unsure that Jesus was fully God who had come to dwell among us. Meanwhile, the Hellenistic Jews and Greek culture as a whole would have an easier time believing he was God, but a more difficult time believing that God would take on flesh and become a man and dwell among us. This problem has to do with the way that the Greek philosophers thought about the duality of man's nature. They agreed that there was something good and something bad about human nature, but They didn't see it the same way. They they divided it differently than it's divided in the book of Genesis. And to understand that, it's helpful, for example, to look at uh, Orphic legend. You know, the god Dionysus who was eaten by a titan. In Orphic legend, it says, Dionysus, under the name Zagreus, was the son of Zeus by his daughter Persephone. And at the direction of Hera, the infant Zagoras, or Dionysus, was torn into pieces, cooked and eaten by the evil titans. But his heart was saved by Athena. And he, now Dionysus, was resurrected by Zeus through Semele. Zeus struck the titans with lightning, and they were consumed by fire, and from their ashes came the first humans, who thus possessed both the evil nature of the titans and the divine nature of the gods." Now, there weren't a lot of Greeks who believed this literally at this point, but this is a reflection of their explanation for the duality of man. And for them, the spirit was good, the spirit was of the gods, the spirit, the soul was pure, and the body was evil. It was despicable, it was gross, but the spirit was what what was most important in all of us. And so if you follow that logic out, God, who is a spirit, if he were to come and dwell among us, he would be taking on flesh. The flesh, from their standpoint, was a trap for the soul. Why would a pure, powerful being of light ever allow himself to be entrapped in these mortal bodies? And so for them, the idea that God would become a man was very difficult to understand. Why would God ever take on flesh? Jesus may have been God, but God certainly wouldn't have become a human. We get a hint of this in the writing of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, where he talks about this 
briefly. He says in verse 22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. From the Jewish perspective, how could God go and die on a cross? And from a Greek perspective, why would God ever take on flesh? Both sides had strong inclinations against what, what understanding what God was doing. And so the author, having addressed the issue of the deity of Christ, is now beginning to address the humanity of Christ. Did God become a man or not? And he begins in a very, inter- <coughs> a very interesting way. He begins with a discussion about the nature of man. Let's look at Hebrews 2 verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. So the author is saying somewhere it's written And we have the benefit of knowing it's Psalm 8 that he's quoting. And here the psalmist is just taking time to kind of stare up at the night sky. Have you ever done that where you're just out in the mountains or you're in an environment where you're just affected by the reality of the vastness of the universe and you feel small? And you just have that thought, God, what am I to you? Right? That's what's happening here with the psalmists that the author of Hebrews is quoting. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care from him, yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. And you have put all things in, under his feet. It's incredible to think, God, that You have the power to speak the universe into existence and that you want us to be in charge. That you know us, that you care about us, that you have thoughts, you have feelings, you have intentions about us. And he's just sort of marveling in that. What is man? Who are we and why are we here? And why would God entrust us with so much? And why would God become a man? These are some of the most basic fundamental questions that the Bible has incredible answers for. That many of us live much of our lives sort of in tension with that thought of, do I matter? Do I have value? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? I remember before I came to Christ as as an 18-year-old, this was something that would sometimes keep me up at night. Am I who I am supposed to be? Am I on the right track? Am I doing the right thing? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And we find answers to that in places like Genesis 1, where it says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. (laughs) In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So it's funny, the author of Hebrews is reflecting on the works of the psalmist, and the psalmist is reflecting on Genesis, that this is the answer to who we are. We are here as image bearers, unique in the universe, put here to somehow reflect the nature, the character, the power of who God is. We're here to rule over the earth, but not as despots, but as caretakers and stewards of God's incredible creation. We're supposed to do that united with God, connected like family, relationally in Love with him and with one another. The whole purpose that for our creation is relationship. That's who we are. And God wanted us, because he is relational and he is generous, he wanted us involved in his creation. We see a really interesting example of that in Genesis chapter 2. This is something I passed over for many years and didn't think much about. But in 2.19, it says, Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man, God, whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. I read over that for years, and I didn't think twice of it. I just thought, you know, weird, right? God's like, what's this? And Adam's like, cow. And God's like, okay, what's this? And he's like, Bird. And it's like, okay. But then I had kids. And what struck me, once you have kids, is the glory of when your children name things. There's an incredible thing that happens when you present your child with something. I remember my son when he was three years old. He was very verbal. He was very you know, curious. And he loved, he loved machines, airplanes, trains, helicopters, and he would get very excited, very excited whenever anything would come into view that was in that category. And I remember he would look up in the sky and he would see a helicopter and he would be like, bumpy. And we would be like, no, that's a helicopter. And he would say, bumpy. And we were like, bumpy. To this day in my family, my son's 17, we point out to him now when the bumpies fly over, and he's like, oh, okay, you know. But it was marvelous. It was glorious. Just what, what was in him that made that a bumpy, right? All technology for him, anything, a phone, a tablet, a computer, a television, a remote control, was gook. And he loved, he was fascinated with those things. If you had something, he would walk over and be like, Gook, me, gook, gook. And then we got him a fish. We got him one of those betas. And this is my favorite one. And he looked at it one day and we were like, what do you want to name your fish? And he was like, frolic. <laughs> I didn't know he knew the name word frolic. I barely know the word frolic. <laughs> like, where does that come from? And then I thought about this passage and I just thought, what a thing for God to stand with Adam and say, uh, yeah, what's this? And have him be like, cow. God's like, that's awesome. Where does that come from? The relational connection of to create something and then to allow someone else to name it, I think is an incredible testament to the kind of intimacy God wants with us. To connect 
and to work together to invite us, not because he needs us, because he wants us to be involved in what he does is a remarkable picture of the heart of God. And so the author here is saying, you know, why did God become a man? Well, what is man? Man is an image bearer, a relator, a connector, a steward, and in very powerful ways, a child of God. And it says in verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then the author stops quoting the psalm. Remember the font change. And he says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subject to him. It's true. We were put here to be in charge, in connection with God, with each other, with our environment. And we're not in charge. Something has gone terribly wrong. This is why we were made, but we are often subject to the cruelties of creation. We like to think we're in charge, and then some disaster happens, some horrible thing that is completely outside of our control that reminds us that we are small and relatively powerless against the awesome power of creation, yet we were supposed to be its stewards. What happened? We've talked about that. That's the doctrine of the fall, Romans 5.12. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We are under a curse fearfully, wonderfully, and nobly made for an incredible purpose, but we rebelled against God. We threw off God's leadership. We decided to go our own way. And all subsequent human beings are impacted by the choice that the first people, Adam and Eve, made. But we also saw in Genesis 3 how God would bring about the solution from the seed of Eve. As the serpent had tricked and betrayed man, God looked to the serpent and said, from the the line of Eve, your seed will bite her seed on the heel, but her seed will crush your head. So the answer to the problem of sin must come from human flesh. What is man? Glorious and evil, loving and terribly selfish, born to rule and incredibly helpless, creative and destructive. And we are under the curse of death because of the fall. The Greeks had it right in the sense that there is a duality to who we are, but that duality is in our spirit. It's not in our flesh. We are broken and corrupted within And there is only one answer, one way (coughs) to be restored, to be renewed, to be refined. And that is death. The curse of the rebellion. God said, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And the word of God is incontrovertible. There must be 
death because of our corruption. And so the author of Hebrews goes on and says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So only a man, only a human could die for human beings. But only one being could die for all human beings. Jesus became a man so he could take the punishment that we deserve and he could die in our place, all of us, so that our glory could be restored, we could be renewed and refined and reconnected to the glorious purpose for which we were created so that we could once again have the choice of being who it is that we were created to be. But in order for that to happen, he had to pay our price. So the author of Hebrew goes on in verse 11 says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So we are not just stewards. We're not just put here to repent the image of God, but we are put here to be adopted into the family of God. Not as slaves, not as servants, but as children. Adopted as children to the Father and brothers and sisters to the Son. What a glorious outcome. What a glorious vision of who it is that God intended us to be. Jesus, by dying for us, gave us the opportunity to be brought back, grafted into the family of God. And he, as our big brother, is not ashamed. That has always struck me. Do you have any family members that you're ashamed of? Just like the weird uncle that like, you hope doesn't show up to Thanksgiving? Like, I would think that the best that we could hope for is to be that in the family of God. Given our history, our past, what we've done, the atrocities that we've committed, and that a being of pure and utter goodness and glory and righteousness and love like Jesus Christ would be like, that's my brother. That one right there. What a picture of the mercy and kindness of God. God, through Christ, knit us together with him in a way we cannot fully understand and we surely never imagine. Jesus' death on the cross made it possible that the Spirit of God could come dwell inside of us. Again, a miracle that we tend to take flippantly. God took his Spirit the heart of who he is. And when we come to Christ in faith, when we turn to God and say, I need forgiveness, let Jesus' death apply to me, 
God takes his spirit and it now lives inside of us for all eternity. What could be more intimate than that? We become tabernacles, living, walking, talking, mobile sanctuaries of the Spirit of God. And what does He do? But He takes the flesh that we have and puts it on Himself. He becomes more like us. As we become more like Him, it says we're family. For all eternity, we're together, we're united in love, in peace, and in righteousness. But you've got to be cleansed. You've got to let Jesus' death apply to you so we can be together. The author goes on and says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. What's the author doing? He's going all the way back to the garden and saying, This all started with the serpent in the garden and man rebelling, and the penalty was death. Jesus came, he took on flesh, and he died to make death powerless so that love can reign. So that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. This is something that God has never done before in eternity history, going back forever, and that he will never do again, that he has a unique relationship and purpose for us. And so the benefits of God becoming human are what the author's talking about here. If the penalty of sin is death, God had to become human to take that penalty upon himself. If he didn't take on flesh, he couldn't die. Spirits don't die. Bodies die. So Jesus had to take on a fully functional human body in order to accomplish his mission. 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. God becoming human made it possible for him to die for all. Because he was God, he was eternal, and he could die for everyone. And because he was human, he could die for human beings. It's important that we understand this theolo- the theological importance of this because false gospels, false forms of Christianity always either deny the humanity or the deity of Christ, one or the other. And the reason for that is, is because it takes the power away from the gospel. Jesus could not die for our sins if he was not fully man and fully God. It's essential. And when you take grace away, when you take the miracle of the cross away, you no longer have Christian faith according to the Bible. But it also enables him 
and becoming a human being to fully relate to our experience. And I think that's a little tricky because God knows all things. But what it does is it helps us know that this isn't theoretical knowledge. This isn't like God knows all things. He read it in a book. This is like God knows all things. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to yearn for something that's wrong. And I think that's important too because I think a lot of times we often undergo temptation. And we love to fool ourselves into thinking if we're tempted, the battle is lost. We're walking down the street and someone attractive catches our eyes and we think, I should go back for a second look. We're tempted. But the choice there is whether or not to sin and lust or to whether to take our thoughts captive and move forward. But what do we often tell ourselves? Well, I already had the thought, I might as well go through with it. Whether it's shopping or porno or anger or hatred, right? We have that moment of temptation where we're confronted. This is how God was able to, was able to say to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. He had not yet committed sin, but he was headed down a path He said, you must master it. You must choose what's right. Jesus, in the same way, was tempted by all things, yet without sin. And so temptation is the moment of choice, not the moment of wickedness. That comes next, whether it's in our hearts or whether it's in actuality. I think this also teaches us this This idea that God would be willing to take on flesh and dwell among us teaches us so much about the heart of God. His desire to be close to us. He gives us His Spirit and He takes on our flesh so that we would know that He understands us, so that we could clearly understand Him. It proves the heart of God, just how relational he is, how wonderful and how desirous he is of having meaningful connections with us. He moves into the middle of our mess, our messy, screwed up, bent lives and says, I am your brother and I am unashamed. I am your father and you are my child. In the person of Jesus Christ, he exposes himself. He becomes vulnerable to our wicked whims. He can be touched. He can be beaten. He can be spit upon. He can be stripped naked. And he can be killed. But he did this because of his desire to be our father and for us to be his children. I think it's amazing to think about it from the standpoint of, is this the kind of God that that people make up? This is what's completely and totally unique about biblical Christianity and all religions. Nearly every religion you study, every religion you look at, God is big, God is powerful, God wants stuff from you, and if you don't do what God wants, he's going to get you. Only in Christianity is God big, God powerful, and God does everything that needs to be done, 
even death on a cross in the hopes that we would choose a relationship with Him. It's totally different. I think this also teaches us something really important about the value of human life. God is telling us something about the value of what He has made. We are God's self-portrait. He is the ultimate creator, the ultimate artist, the ultimate inventor. And what He made, what His intent in making us was, was to make children. To make something like Him that would reflect who he is. And when we got bent and we headed off in the wrong direction, he did what any parent would do who loves his children. He intervened, even at the ultimate personal price, because he is love. What would happen if we began to see each other through God's eyes? If we began to value our neighbor the way God values us, The whole dynamic of the way we live, of the way we think about people, the things that matter would totally begin to change if we could only have the blinders lifted from our eyes and see the spiritual reality of one another. Seeing each other the way God sees us would change the world. When we look each other right now, what do we typically do? We focus on the inconsequential differences, things like race, things like socioeconomic background, things like culture or gender or political affiliations. We rip each other apart because of these inconsequential differences when in reality we are God's family. We are noble portraits of the greatest being in the universe bound together by his love, his creation, and his willingness to sacrifice himself for us. We are children of a loving father and brothers of an unashamed Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis put it so well in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is the light of these overwhelming possi- it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as that the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. 
But our merriment must be the kind, and in fact it is the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins, in spite of which we love the sinner. No more tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Oh, that we could see that. That we could look around the room, look around the office, look around our neighborhood, and see the potential of the glory of God that we are surrounded with all the time, as opposed to these petty differences which bring us to such a rage. The takeaway here is this Jesus was fully God and fully human. The Bible is very clear that that is necessary and that is non-negotiable in terms of the gospel. But the takeaway for you is also that you are loved. Look at what God did. You are significant. You are valued. You are important. And before that puffs you up, Before that gives you a sense of superiority where you would look down your nose at your brother and judge him for being different, know also that he is just as loved, just as valued, just as important. And let yourself reflect this week on how the world might change if we allowed ourselves to see the reality of God's truth and the people who drive us crazy. They got Hebrews 2. We praise you, God, that you have the answers to the most profound questions we can ask. And those answers are so much better than what we could imagine, than what we could hope for. That you would be good, and that you would be loving, and that you would be merciful and just. And that you would care enough about us to sacrifice yourself, to take our penalty upon yourself. We pray, God, for anyone here that doesn't know you. We pray that they'll hear you knocking on the door of their hearts. We pray that they'll have an exchange with you, an honest moment of reflection where they will hear your voice and open the door. And we pray as we go out into the world, as we go out, into our lives this week that we can carry you with us in a way that's winsome and truthful and loving. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.